0: First Minute Capital is a $100 million seed stage fund, sector agnostic, and proudly backed by a number of top technology founders, including 30 unicorn founders. The My First Minute series is about learning from prior generations of successful entrepreneurs and sharing their insights and lessons with the next generation of tech founders. The series has two focuses. One how they got started in their careers, their first minute, if you will. And two, how they see the world today and what they're most excited about. My name is Spencer Crawley. I'm a co-founder and general partner at First Minute Capital. And today I'm speaking with Ross Mason. Really couldn't be more thrilled um... To be chatting to Ross, um, I'm going to do the, sh- the bio extremely short because I think everyone really knows Ross's background. Um, but it's and, and Ross, you must correct me if I get your potted professional history wrong in 30 seconds. Um, but it's a, it's a, it's a career that's taken him from computer science uh, degree in the UK to being a CEO for the first time in 2005 uh, in an integrations consultancy. Um, which then, as 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 I've read Ross talk about. His frustration with that donkey work led him to think about the mule project which then became mule soft itself fast forward 13 years of blood sweat and tours, and you have an ipo a very successful one followed by a six and a half billion dollar exit to salesforce um easy right um <laughs> and then uh, i think the other sort of key uh, two things really to say are that dig uh, ventures uh, which Ross uh, and Melissa Lester run uh, across London and Geneva is originally Ross's family office. Um, it's kind of uh, graduating into being a top tier, early stage fund focused on pre-seed, seed, B2B enterprise SaaS businesses, investing in the US and Europe, um, and we work really closely with them and think um, the world of them as an as a, as a investing entity. Um, Ross has also written a book, which we might have to come to later. Um, And I think last but not least, in terms of, if you were to plot a founder's success against how nice a person they are, I think Ross is anomalously top right of that graph. Um, So it's really fun to have you, Ross. Um, uh, Thank you for for taking time out. Um, Ross, maybe um, the... Easiest way to slide into this is just for people to hear a little bit about those very early days of MuleSoft.
1: Yeah, okay. Um, so good morning or afternoon everyone. Thanks for joining today. Um That was a great intro. Thank you. I, uh, I got a bit shy and embarrassed. I hate people talking about me, but um, <laughs> It was really good. Uh, yeah, so I've never lived through a pandemic. I don't think anyone has, um, because you, I don't think we really had it at this type of scale since maybe 1913, when we had, um, the Spanish flu or something like that. Um, and, but what I have lived through with MuleSoft, uh, in the early days. So we, I founded MuleSoft in 2007. Um, it was a venture backed company. We raised 4 million in, in 2006. And by the, uh, sort of, middle of 2008, we started to see that, you know, people starting to get worried about a financial crisis. And it was particularly bad for us because our software was, uh, you know, I think probably about 50 to 70% of our customer base were banks or financial institutions. And overnight, you know, we, we lost, we lost some customers who just went out of business like Fannie Mae. Um, We were in conversations with loads of others that just dropped off the radar and Um, Anyone who remembers 2008 was in Venture at the time, there was a a deck that went around, um, I forget the VC, I think it was Sequoia, um, prepared a deck that basically said that all pretty much what's happening right now, all all companies need to hunker down, they need to cut their burn down um, significantly and hunker down for the winter because we don't know what's going to happen. And it it has a lot of um, echoes of what's happening right now, which is, there's something pretty you know, big and global happening to everyone. Um, it's changing our behavior. It's changing the economic landscape. It's changing our lives in particular, more so than I think the financial crisis did. Um, but we don't know when the end is in sight, and we don't know whether everything from the stimulus that we're doing or even you know, we don't even know whether we can um, contain this thing or do we have to keep living in semi-isolation for the next three years. There's a lot, a lot of unknowns right now. Um, so it's pretty interesting to build a company in this sort of time because it, it like everyone says this, but it, it really forces you to think about what's important to me in my business. And I remember my uh, board coming to me at, towards the end of two thousand and eight, and they really had this sort of look in their face, like, ah, I think this might be it. What do you think? Do we close the doors on this? And I thought it was really weird because what they were really saying was, you know, we're ready to write off our investment and and I, it, was, it was tough because they weren't saying we wanted to shut down. They were just saying, what do you think? And in my mind, and this is quite critical for this type of time is, if, if you really are going after something that there's a real need in the marketplace and you really have a reason to be operating and delivering that capability and you believe the demand is there and going to continue to be there, then there's really no reason to, to shut, you know, shut it off. But you have to think about what you have got to build next. And I went back to them. I said, look, give me a weekend to think about it. And I looked at our market opportunity. I looked at every organization I realized, and I understood how much pain they were in integrating software and systems together. Um, I looked at the competition and I realized they weren't delivering what they needed to. They weren't even thinking about the problem the right way. And so I felt like we had a head start, even though we'd lost like a bunch of our customers. It was very unlikely we were going to make any sales in the next 12 months. Um, but I felt we should continue doing it. And it was great because in one weekend, I really understood what we were about um, and what we had to do moving forward. And you know, beyond what you hear, I think, from you know some of these other podcasts and, and LinkedIn articles, um, what I really cared about as a founder then was, what the heck do I do next? Okay, I know I've got to make cuts, but how do I, how do I decide what they are? How do I, you know, how do I figure out whether my product really has market fit right now? Do I, you know, and is there a point where I give up? And I, you know, hopefully we can talk about some of these things and, you know, my thoughts at least on, on that stuff, which is far more gritty and and probably a bit more important to a lot of the people on this, on this call.
0: No, definitely. And I, I would love to uh, explore more how you found that belief in those hardest days um, to continue. As you said, perhaps just for a momentary uh, stepping back, and I, I, would, I would guess maybe three quarters of the call know well what MuleSoft uh, did and does, um, but for those less familiar with application networks and APIs um, and kind of enterprise software, um, what uh, what
2: does MuleSoft do?
1: Right, so MuleSoft basically connects the world's applications, data, and devices, right? And we do it for, Probably the Fortune 2000s uh, and maybe beyond at this point, with under Salesforce. And we help people connect things the right way. So, the, you know, there's a lot of people in our space that, that do integration software. You you'll, might have heard of TIBCO and IBM and Oracle and Dell Boomi and Apogee, and now a whole bunch of functions as service companies and other types of widgets. There's There's lots of people trying to solve the how do I connect two or more systems or two or more data sources together. Um, MuleSoft has got very good at helping organizations to stop thinking about connections and start thinking about reusable assets. Treat your data and components as reusable things that should be available to different parts of the organization. And ideally, what we were trying to get to is more self-service within the organization so people could do more on their own. Um, So essentially, we connect things, but we also make those connections reusable through APIs or microservices,
0: and maybe to bring that to life um, with one example, I've heard you talk about, for instance, Wells Fargo or a bank, and how they might use it. Just a very short um, example of how that is in practice. Yeah,
1: so we 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 were almost market agnostic. So you know, BP ran ran their transformation program on us. Um, HSBC uh, their whole open API initiative, which is basically making all consumer banking functions available through APIs Mm -hmm. is built on our platform. Uh, Bank of America did something very similar in the healthcare space. It's a lot more about heavy connectivity. It's not, they're not quite as far ahead, which is unfortunate given the current climate, Um, but everything from e-commerce, everyone from, you know, Ralph Lauren to Ted Baker to ASICS, um, Coca-Cola, McDonald's, like we, we just had a lot of different companies, all, the different, the, what was interesting about the way we approached it, because we weren't talking about connections, we're talking about really changing uh, digital, uh, digital capabilities into assets. Uh, our conversation was quite often with the CEO and the CIO, mm-hmm. um, which sort of set us apart from the rest of the other players.
0: Got it. And, and if we cast our minds back to some of those moments, some of those board meetings you mentioned in 08, do you do you remember specific moments where you were most doubtful of the future of of the business and and where you had um, where you were wavering in, in the need for yourself to to exist?
1: So weirdly, I, I'm a I'm a I'm an idiot. I think um, I I wasn't wavering back then, and I, you know I, I think if and it wasn't because I was certain. It was just it, there was actually a bit of well, what else am I going to do, right? So if I give up now and I can't go work for anyone else, I already hated working for other people. I think if you spoke to any of my former bosses before I did New York, <laughs> they'd be like, oh God, he was hard to manage. I, and I just, you know, I just didn't work well in that environment. I wanted to create something, you know, a different type of environment. Um, so I didn't, it was interesting. I, I never really doubted, um, you know, I didn't know we would have the outcome we, we were going to have. So just to be clear, I'm not saying I, I had no doubt that we were going to be an IPO company, but I had no doubt that we were trying to solve a problem that people really needed to solve, and which was connectivity and integration. Um, and, you know, I always thought, well, even if I can't figure out, as long as I can hire really good people around me to help me figure it out, we're going to, you know, we'll get the flywheel moving. So back then, I think my certainty is actually what got the um, investors over the line. I will say for my companies now that I you know I work with so you know you mentioned Dig Ventures but I before Dig Ventures I did about forty angel investments in the U.S. over a period of four years and I actually like it when they come to me in a bit more vulnerable um, because I like to know how they're thinking. I I, I think I'm a bit of an anomaly. I, I'm a bit resistant I, or maybe I push down stress so I don't really understand I'm feeling it until I get sick or something. Um, and, but back then, I, it wasn't, I wasn't dealing with uncertainty, but the, the reality was I was certain that the problem was there and people really, really needed to solve it whether there was a financial crisis or not. Yeah. And, and I think that's the key right now because you know, if you look at a list of 100 companies, it's hard to justify a lot of those companies really existing in what they're offering to market today.
0: And, and before we kind of turn the, turn the torch to the, to the, to the future, does. I think one of the most unusual elements of the MuleSoft story is, you know, in the end, as you say, you've got some of the best investors uh, in the world, whether it was uh, NEA or Salesforce or Lightspeed, Cisco, etc. You had your IPO and you had a huge, one of the largest enterprise acquisitions um, of the last decade. But at the the beginning was tough. And and that, and that, that period that you took to find product market fit um, am I right in saying it was five, six years until you felt you had product market fit yeah and and and
1: so I think I had more but I had more doubts there. I probably had more doubts when we had ten million in revenue than we had when we had two million in revenue and we 're going through the financial crisis okay because the the challenge with finding product market fit is sometimes and quite often it just doesn 't take off for quite some time and you can build a company to 10 million revenue and then 20 and then 30, 40. You can, you can probably get to about 30 million. Um, a lot of companies seem to be able to get there and then they sort of run out of steam a bit because there's a bit of a growth threshold that has to happen in terms of the way you operate. Um, and I think I had more doubts in those times, but weirdly when, you know, the economy was shot and we were losing our customer base for some reason. Um, Maybe because i hadn't experienced it before because it just didn't seem to worry me it seemed to worry the people around me and i, I guess well I, I think we keep going and see what happens um and you know for us we decided okay we're not going to do any sales so you know one of the hard questions we had to answer was like okay we're going to reduce our burn who are we going to get let, let go of and the reality is is some companies should keep their sales people and maybe um, reduce their engineering team Other companies probably get rid of their salespeople but uh, retain their engineering depending on how mature they are, whether they found any market fit. And luckily with some good guidance from my board, um, we decided that, okay, we don't need to make any sales in the next 12 months, but we do need to keep um, the product running and get to a point where we can come back out to market. And that's kind of the way we dealt with it.
0: And And on that guidance, um, because most of the founders dialing in a early stage some have found product market fit some are um, some are pre-mod product market fit or even pre-launch um the, the significance of of mentors for you whether they were people on your board or, or not um in in those early years was it something major for you or you you found kind of you, you relied more on inner resilience or what was that what was that dynamic like
1: yeah um now I think this is because of me. I, don't th- I, I, I think I've matured a lot in the 13 years at MuleSoft. I think in the early days, I had no idea how to use a good advisor. Mm. You know, I wasn't thinking about enough about what questions. I was very much in my own head. Um, yeah. I wasn't thinking about enough about the questions I should be asking, which is actually why I like founders to tell me when they're stressed or struggling to figure out where to go next, because um, you, you, you just can't figure it all out in one go. You can't go from working as a developer somewhere or working as a product manager somewhere and then suddenly run a company and it all intuitively makes sense to you. It's important that you, rather than having to figure out the answers for yourself or even more questions to ask is just raise your hand every now and again and say, Hey, look, I don't know how to even think about this problem. What should I do? Um, I didn't do enough of that. And to that re- re- that end, I don't think I got enough out of um out of the mentors I had at the time, so it was reasonably good. It could have been, you know, give myself a, a D. I should have really been uh, asking more, thinking more about how to leverage them.
0: Were, were you conscious of? And then I promise you, will, you've indulged me lots about questions about you, which I know is uh, uh, is, is something uh, that, uh, that that you mentioned you're not keen on. But does does the, do, were you aware of how you were perceived as a CEO, but um, by? by Colleagues, is that was there, were there characteristics you identi- self identified as as a CEO? Um,
1: yeah, I think I was. Um, I think my leadership style has grown a lot. I think back then I was a bit like a bit of a benevolent dictator. Um, I you know I was coming in as a specialist, yeah. but I didn't leave a lot of room um, for others until until. It wasn't until I, I hired some really good operational people that I realized, okay, I don't know, you know, I got to let people do what they, they need to do and really learn from them as well as help teach them what I know. Um, and, you know, that was that was actually a really fun transition in some ways, because I think at the beginning, certainly I, I carried up too much weight, too much burden um, on what we had to do and the strategy and direction and messaging and the way we represented ourselves. and in reality, you can um, you can bring others into that either in a formal or informal
0: capacity, which I learnt too late. I think. Super, super interesting. Today, I think it's it's you know the the message from all investors to founders is extend your runway, cut your costs. Um, this is obviously totally exceptional times, um, incredibly difficult times for uh, for societies, let alone let alone businesses and early-stage businesses, um, the, those, who, those who have to fundraise, those founders who are facing existential crises where they know they've got three, six, nine months of runway left, if you're in a position where you are going to have to go to market to raise more money to keep your business alive, assuming that you're not going to hit profitability in that period, what what's your advice to them? How do you go about fundraising in this type of environment?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I can tell you, like, you know, we've looked at, I don't know, I, I've, I've probably looked at 15 mills, probably looked at 50 companies this year. Um, there's only a few of them, I think, that can raise money right now. And and the challenge is, I think the found, founders take this as a bit of a hit sometimes, but quite often it's just that the space they're playing in right now just may not make sense. Right? So... Uh, you, you've got to understand, because like, we do B2B um, SaaS, so we're very much enterprise and we think about what enterprises are going through. Well, every enterprise literally are, you know, in the last three weeks have gone fully digital, which is an opportunity actually. But it also means they're trying to figure out how to keep their operations going when people can't be in the same room together. They're trying to figure out how to keep the network running and keep redundancy going when people can't interface with each other. And what you find is even in enterprise IT, there's a lot of interactions that happen to support the digital activity. And so um, if your product or service or your offering isn't giving them something that those people care about right now, it's gonna be tough, right? It's gonna be tough to um, find product market fit. And it also means that investors are gonna have a harder time you know, really mapping what you're doing to what they think people are going to need. Now it doesn't mean that, you know, so the challenge I think is, is really first to look at what you're building, what your proposition is and be very honest with yourself is, is this something the world needs right now? Right. And there's just, you know, there's, there's a ton of things which they're in the top 20, but they may not be in the top 10. And I think that's a bit tough. But the other thing to bear in mind is the world isn 't over right we will go back to some normalcy we 'll mm-hmm. still be building ml algorithms we 're still developing software we still need tools to enable other parts of the organization we still um, need better e commerce solutions etc cetera, et cetera so there 's still plenty of opportunity out there it 's just you got have to find. you have to work a lot harder to find the right investor I think um, so little known story but I probably spoke to about 70, almost every VC firm you, can, you could have named in 2005, 2006 um, to get one term sheet from MuleSoft. So that's a, that's a ton of legwork, right? That's, that's a ton of conversations, um, you know, and it's sort of 69 no's and one yes. And, and, and
0: 69 very regretful VCs as well.
1: <laughs> yes. So, well, you know, the thing is, the reason why everyone said no was because There'd already been a wave of integration, Like People had seen, it and it all failed. It was all terrible, and they, everyone was like, I, "I can't do this again." It was just a nightmare the first time, um, which I hated. But I, I now I get it. I, you know, I understand what they went through. But um, but you know, you got to have to you got to have to work a lot harder, I think, to raise money in this market. I think founders may need to uh, reduce their valuation and maybe some of their targets and how much they want to raise. Yes. Um, i don't think that's a bad thing i've seen you know valuations go up on on ideas and and you know a team and while that's attractive it's just not worth 20 million um yet and so i think there'll be a correction in the market especially for new people i think the people that need to raise right now first look at your product um really be very honest and pretty go to some of your mentors to sort of say do you think we have the right product or is there space for something like what we're building in this Mm -hmm. market and orientate your picture around that and then Obviously, um, talk to a lot of different investors because I think there'll be different appetites right now. There'll be a big range of appetite to, to back certain things.
0: And, and, and to go back to something you touched on earlier, those who have had to reduce their team sizes, um, what, what advice would you give them both in terms of how to handle that compassionately and, and, to, and to, you know, now more than most periods is, a, is an incredibly difficult time to let people go um and also but how is a ceo as a founder to understand who you think is essential uh, in your team and who isn't
1: yeah well i i you know i'll answer the first the second bit first because sure. it's a short one um you know who do you keep who do you let go um the reality is is you you probably need to know what you're going to spend time on the next 12 months if you really think it's sales and you have a product that you can sell then it might be that your engineering might be, able, you know, you might have had hired, a, you know, ahead of the curve for engineering and reduce the headcount by one or two there, um, and keep your sales or higher sales if you don't have any. Um, on the flip side, if if really the the strategy is okay, hang hunker down, weather out the storm, lower burn, build build good product with a small team, and then come back out fighting when uh, the dust has settled a bit, then obviously. Um, Things like any, anyone in marketing or, or sales is probably a higher higher risk, um, but it depends on the individual company. There's, there's there's just no rules on it. It just depends on where you are and um, you know whether you can really drive revenue right now, or it's
0: better just to keep building product. And then in terms of maybe lessons you learn from from, I'm sure there are many periods of. of... Rapid expansion, but also contraction in the MuleSoft story. Just in terms of how you handle that, and it's, it's probably the hardest thing that most CEOs have to go through is 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 letting laying, laying off um, teams that they that they clearly value highly. Any any kind of yeah, instinctive tips on that?
1: Yeah, so I um, it is super hard. Everyone says the same thing. Um, don't be afraid to show emotion. Like it's just hard. Like you know when you start a company and you hire your first ten people. You kind of hide that person thinking they were part of the band and, and that's what you would grow with. And then you've, you've got to change change the narrative. Um, it, it's just, you know, it, that conversation is difficult. There's loads online on, you know, how to, you know, uh, how to do the right things there. I think one of the other important aspects of this is how you communicate to the rest of the team. Yeah. Um, and the team needs to know, A, that there's a plan. Even if the plan is a little bit open-ended, that you don't have all the information. I think a lot of founders get wrapped up with um, having all the chess moves, where in reality, I think more frequent updates with the team, just saying, um, you know, this is the direction we're heading, this is how we're thinking about it, and and, and just keep people in the loop so they don't feel like they're on their own. Um, And then the other thing is for employees, knowing what they can do to help, right? It's it's one thing to say, oh shit, the world's changed, I know what we're going to do. That's just terrifying for everyone. But if you if you say that and then you know in this what I need you know what I really need to do is is look after our customers, make sure that they are getting what they need and and we know where we are for our renewals, that kind of stuff. Um, just help get, make, making sure people know either to keep doing the job the way they have been doing it or do it better or what they need to do in order to to sort of help steer the company in the right direction, which actually just requires a lot of like it's good to sort of switch to daily daily scrums, because obviously everyone's remote, they're not seeing people. So, you know, more consistent daily interactions, probably better than once a week, all hands, depending on how big you are. Um, Yes, I I mean, nothing. Those are the things. It's basically people just need to know what's going on. They need to know how you're thinking um, and you are going to have to make some tough
0: decisions of course and and you mentioned earlier this wave of enterprises going digital a lot of saas founders on the line any thoughts around how to prioritize a, a pipeline in either in this kind of environment or or in the early stages of the business in general yeah
1: so actually this is really important right so if you're going to answer the question am i a painkiller or am i a vitamin you know am i actually solving a problem in this climate or am i just making something better um, frankly your buyers right now are looking for painkillers they're looking to figure out how to uh, keep keep their organizations not from fracturing to keeping up pro productivity to a certain level um, uh, solving the same problems they have to solve before but like faster and smarter so How do you figure out whether you've got product market fit for a painkiller instead of a a, a vitamin? Well, first step, obviously, ask people to know. Talk to your prospective customer. Um, We do this as VCs all the time. We actually talk to CIOs and chief data officers and anyone who might be buyers of technology to understand what's on their priority list. And it's a really good idea right now to go and talk to your customers or prospects if you can even get them on the phone and just ask them are we in your top three, top five, top 10, or do we not even make the top 20? If you have four conversations like that and no one's saying that you're in the top five, that's a problem. If you're in the top five, just have one out of five conversations, that's also a problem. So you have to first know where you know, your customer's head's at. Um, and then once you know where they're at, then you can change your messaging. And then the, this, the sales pipeline is really about having a, a What you're really trying to do is, in every conversation, sift the signals from the noise, right? So if we just have a first meeting, if you tell someone we're going to reduce the cost of X, chances are everyone's going to say yes. But you know, what are the key indicators from getting that from a 10% qualified to a 20% qualified? And you know, we actually just did this with uh, one of our um, portfolio companies. We 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 help talk through their sales process and how to break it up into stages so that you can more accurately understand if you really are finding product market fit in the early sales cycle and further down the funnel. That's super important because what every one of your investors and board is looking for is, are you making progress? And it can't all be qualitative. There has to be some quantitative indicators that this is going the right way. And for a lot of people, that might not be Revenue for the next six months—it's going to have to be, you know, strong pipeline with a, a view to close in the next three months.
0: Really, really helpful, and and I'm very keen to open this up to questions in just one moment. But please have, um, please do uh, have questions ready if, if you have some for Ross. Um, two two short ones, Ross. One is is lots of people on the line will have great uh, entrepreneurs around them who are starting, thinking about starting all sorts of B2B SaaS type businesses. Um, what what's the, the key thing you'd like them to know about Dig and how you guys are and how you operate and, and your uh, and your clearly very strategic value that you bring to people?
1: Yeah. Um, yeah, if you think about starting right now, I, I think now's a great time to start a company if you can bootstrap for a few months because obviously when a market changes this rapidly, no one can keep up, right? So suddenly, yeah, especially in the B2B world, uh, it, you know, the problems that, um, like both sort of marketing sales and IT leadership were solving at the beginning of this year have all gone out the window. They're all now trying to figure out how do I how do I operate when my customers no longer go to stores or how do I operate when my employees never can get in a, in a meeting room and get level set on things. So um, I think there's a whole range of, of things that matter now that just didn't matter before for enterprises. Um, so you know for any new founders is you go and look at the white space that this this change has created and that's where i'd want to see um ideas being picked. like a new sas application for slightly better crm for a certain you know sub the markets Probably not interesting right now people mm-hmm. are going to change their um their systems very easily but if they can find ways to automate processes find ways to um help their employees because they remote self-serve better self to education better, get certified, have more purpose and alignment with the with the organization they're working working within. All that stuff's pretty interesting right now. And then if you want to get in touch with us, it's just hello at, at Dig Ventures. And you know, I think our our skill set is both Mel and I both have very recent operational experience in the B2B and SaaS space. Uh, very strong networks and and we're we're pretty good at running these um, these sort of playbook seminars on on sales and, and product market fit and go-to-market strategy.
0: And I think are happy to go right in at the beginning, pre-seed, sort of first money into a business.
1: Yeah, exactly. We, we, we come in early. We like to take bets on founders and ideas.
0: And now, turning over to Q&A. Um, one um, from uh, Dash, who's uh, a founder-based uh, in Boston, building an operating system for wet labs um, all around lab automation, which is obviously timely in the current circumstance. Um, Dash's question is, what does the enterprise IT adoption of new software look like during a crisis? Um, what about if it helps the company with the crisis due to better remote culture?
1: Yeah, I, I think right now the problem number one is is allowing companies to keep functioning even though they've gone... Uh, you know, from the employee base, completely digital. So anything in that space, obviously we know Zoom's exploded, um, but there's load, loads more sort of collaboration um, and uh, collaboration sharing tools are going to do well in the short term. Um, so I, obviously that's one area. I also think um, things like employee wellness has been interesting. There's been this sort of, rethink of uh, human capital management over the last couple of years. We've noticed you know, a lot of companies coming through the pipeline, tackling different parts of benefits, things like that. But I actually think uh, wellness is going to be pretty important uh, because it's part of you know, the human condition it is to be around other people. And if we're all out for three months, uh, just helping people think about how to how to spend their time the right way, even when they're working. Has changed a lot. So anything in that space, I, I imagine you could you could convince MuleSoft or anyone else to uh, to, to, to get involved with. Um, and then of course on the other side, which is customers, is where the revenue comes from. A lot changed there too. So consumer, you know, the del- delightful consumer experience still matters, but what matters more right now is um, trust, the ability to connect with other humans. Um, you know whether it's banking, whether it's healthcare, whether it's uh, um, uh, you know consumer purchasing. Um, so there's a there's a lot there around. Um, you know our, our behaviours about to change a lot. You know our travel behaviours changed, our communication behaviours changing, uh, our purchasing behaviour is going to change a lot. You know a lot of people don't have a lot of money right now. More people think thinking about saving. They're thinking about you know planning better for the future in case this ever happens again. So any products that sort of lean into the realizations people are having because this has happened are uh, also pretty interesting.
0: Not totally uh, s- s- separate thematically from that, but a question from Amber, uh, who, founder of Zyper and marketing platform in SF. Um, uh, thank you for your great insights. How did your sales cycle change in 08? Did you adapt sales package, new target personas, discount pricing? In short, what was the most successful adaptation you introduced during this time?
1: Well, I think the first adaptation was we did away with sales. Um, we had a very small sales organization. It just did not make sense um, because we'd been selling to banks. That's where we'd, we'd get, you know got our um, our early traction and that the bottom just fell out. And so what we did we we, we hunkered down um, we defined a product strategy that we thought, um, would be appealing to people outside of banking, uh, mm-hmm. so not just banking. And then we started building that. And then uh, myself and I had a couple of executives. We'd actually did, we did the sales for the, the next nine months, and we did it because we weren't supporting that many customers. We there wasn't a ton of inbound, but we could spend time really thinking about okay, what do people outside of financial services need? And we started building and selling towards that. So that was the shift is probably making a bit more generic um for better or worse it i don't recommend people go generic when you're small but um we did because we didn't really have any other choice we didn't know what other vertical to go after we didn't have any
0: insights at the time henry mason who's a VC at dawn i've let you ask question live if you're if you're there henry otherwise i can read yours out up, up to you thank you so much for your, all your brilliant insights um something that we're saying we're, we're a b2b SaaS investor um, some of our companies are trying to adjust their marketing message from a maybe a boom times focused uh, thing like, you know, drive more opportunity to a harder ROI thing. I'm just curious if that was relevant to you at MuleSoft um, and whether it spoke to buyers more to do that.
1: Yeah, um, absolutely. I, I think marketing messages generally need to be very, um, uh, you know, aligned to the sentiment of the market. Uh, i mean it's kind of the base level you don't want to be talking you know interestingly i've just i'm i'm doing the uh, the mulesoft connect um, uh, events remote this year and we've changed all our messaging i was going out with a more uh, visionary next next decade this is what's going to happen and we've decided to not do that because it's tone deaf you know our audience aren't looking about the next decade that if they they want to know what's happening in the next 3 Three to nine months and how they should be preparing themselves um, and I think any marketing message is the same as you, you need to know where people people 's concerns are meet them where they are and um, you know really position your product around the things that you you know really do help move the needle for them and again it, it comes back to that market fit question ROI is always a really good one because everyone in every department is being asked to justify their spend right now and If you can help them justify by giving them a calculator or giving them a model that they can just say, look, this is what we've already saved. This is what we'll save in the next two years. We should keep working with X. That makes your life a lot easier. The more prescriptive you can be, the better.
0: Uh, Dominic, uh, who is the founder of a headless CMS business called Storyblock. Dominic, I'm gonna, you're unmuted. Thanks as well, uh, for, us for, for the insights. Uh, for me, it would be really interesting to see um, or get your opinion on the experience of integration partners, uh, agencies or other kind of partners in combination of enterprise sales, and uh, how you would expect them to uh, engage in the next couple of months, because most of the time those partners, of course, are project-based and uh, might fluctuate a lot. And just so everyone heard that, that was integration partners.
1: Yeah, integration partners are much easier to work with if you if you have a a, a very clear, uh, clearly described function. So Salesforce is easy because it was you know it was recognized as CRM. Um, you know, people like Marketo, even even G Suite and um, Mike, you know, Microsoft three hundred and sixty five are all great candidates for working with integration partners because they can easily plug them into a reference architecture. Um, so providing you really fit in an existing category, um, I think it's very easy to work with integration partners. I think it's a lot harder if you're trying to create a category like we were at MuleSoft, because we kept getting shoehorned into one thing, but it wasn't really our value proposition. And so it was very hard for us to um, make the case uh, with the integration partner to keep plugging us in. Uh, I think in the context of the coming months, what really matters with integration partners is it's. It really comes down to okay, what categories are companies still going to invest in? Right? So, um, you know, I, I, they're still going to invest in uh, anything to manage remote workers, uh, human capital management. They're still going to invest in uh, infrastructure, especially if they're doing more business online. So, shifting to e more rapidly. Um, so, it, but yeah, it's a bit it's hard to sort of give you a very direct answer, but. Um, I think the key with integration partners is you have to have a category that they understand before it makes it easy to work with them, otherwise you're just banging
0: your head against brick wall. A question from Ash, um, I'm guessing that's Ash at uh, General Atlantic. Um, how do you think the MA and IPO landscape will change post-COVID?
2: Oh, that's a great
1: question. Well I think there's going to be a ton of MA. there'll be a lot of, uh, you know, cash is going to be king for the next uh, six to nine months. Um, and I think a lot of companies will get bought, but I don't think it will happen until, uh, you know, frankly, I think there's going to be a much bigger recession. So, you know, if you follow the stock markets, you'll know it has been bouncing around like crazy, but it's sort of recovered the last two weeks. I, I think all, that, all that's happening is the stimulus being provided by the central banks and, and the Fed in the U.S. Is, is trying to persist a bubble state. Um, but the reality is, is that bubble is, is, is already burst. We can't unburst it. And I expect when, you know, Q2 and Q3 earnings come out this year, we're going to see big, big drop offs in the stock market, uh, which will make a massive difference to valuations in the private and public sector. And anyone who has cash will be acquiring quite aggressively. I don't think anyone's going to be IPOing for the next 18 months um, unless they really do need to raise cash, uh, which is interesting, but that's why IPOs used to exist. But, you know, in the last seven or eight years, you haven't needed an IPO to, to raise capital because there was so
0: much private money. A great question actually from a, someone uh, without a name is it would be interesting to hear more about that transition from carrying the burden alone to sharing it with others. What did that process look like for you?
1: Uh, it feels amazing once you figure it out. Um, that's a really good question. I'm not sure I can, I can do, that's almost like a post that should be, because it's yeah. a very personal, um, journey, I think, for individuals. But essentially, there's a realization that I, you know, I came to the realization that MuleSoft and me were totally separate. And what I really wanted was other people to own the company. Um, you know, I used to hold the the founder CEO title in absolute revere, I, you know, I was very proud of that. And I, I realized after the crisis, actually, what I really cared about was building a lasting company. And in fact, I, I set on you know after 2008 I set on a journey to do myself out of a job so I went in the opposite direction I decided to hire a CEO and I became CTO and then I hired a CTO and that left me floating in the organization and when I was floating in the organization people were like why would you do that and it just gave me a brand new perspective across the whole organization because everyone else had functions and I didn't have a function Uh, and it allowed me just to do my best work and really figure out what you also needed to be by not being encumbered by the the challenges of being CEO or CTO.
0: I think I'm looking forward to the um, to that blog post because I think it's uh, th- those th- those areas that you just touched on now is super interesting and um, I would I would certainly love to read it. Um, Patrick from View Storefront, if you can hear me, I just unmuted you. You had a question around uh, product market fit uh, in the, in an open source world. Um, you're, you're unmuted if you can hear us.
2: Ross, so, you know, there, there are a lot of open source companies and, and we are the one and, and we are getting amazing traction. There was a lot
0: of enterprise companies uh, deciding uh, to, to use our solution uh, and we
2: are still looking for this perfect market fit and, and the way to monetize on the, on the, you know, open source. And I'm wondering what was, you know, this perfect market fit uh, for you when you were like, okay, this is the perfect way and let's, uh, you know, go with it.
1: Yeah. So, I, I mean, I look at a lot of open source companies. I really like open source companies that the adopter is a completely different person to the buyer. And I don't mean that as you know, developers you know, develop infrastructure software and then CIOs buy it. I mean that there's a reason why the buyer um, knows about you and has to buy you. Uh, and the reason being is because most open source companies, what they do is they build great products that developers adopt. And then they rely on bottoms up adoption to get enough traction in the organization where somebody says, okay, maybe we should buy uh, a subscription to this. And the challenge with that journey is um, bottoms up adoption uh, doesn't really translate well into purchasing decisions ever. It just hasn't. I've looked at open source companies for the last 10, 15 years. and, And unless you've got a really high volume, um, and you might because you're, you know, you're a storefront, but um, you have to have another strategy. What I like to do is have a really good bottoms up adoption strategy and then a top down sales strategy, um, and then have the two meet in the middle. And um, I'm not quite sure where you are, but when, if I look at open source uh, companies, I always ask the founder, how do they think about that? Who would they go to? What would they sell? What does that person see? You know, How do they assess that you're the right product for them? without having to go to a developer to, to make a decision.
0: And there's actually a question linked to that. Rami, the founder of Compose, a messaging platform, it's not open source related, but, but um, uh, is a bottom-up sales approach more resilient during, a, during difficult times?
1: No, I mean, a bottoms up sales approach is, is really good if you've got super high volume. It's always challenging if you don't have that volume. We didn't have that volume. It, we, you know It actually harmed us for a very long time because we... You get this false negative that you get a lot of adoption and you make some sales, but you, you know, to give you some idea, at MuleSoft, we when we had our big breakthrough in probably 2014, maybe 2013, 2014, we didn't change anything about the product. All I did was, um, you know, myself and the CTO and the, the head of customer success figured out a better messaging strategy, and we went after something very different. And we all we did was just message the other product differently but it, it was a message that CIOs really cared about and tackled the problems that they cared about. And they were, they were problems that developers cared about. And we just realized we had to just split our messaging and uh, go outbound and actually create demand versus relying on inbound. And depending on the, the open source um, company, uh, you know, there's very few in my mind that can really go beyond 10 or 20 million in revenue doing inbound only. And at some point, the quicker you can get to Albin selling and targeting,
0: the better. I think we have a question from, a, if I'm not mistaken, from a former Mule Softer in Gench. Um, uh, Gench, you had a question for Ross around uh, the conversations he's having with CXOs and, and what pains they're seeing that are emerging. Yeah, so Ross, you, you mentioned that there could be a good opportunity for people to start a business uh, in this time. So I'm, I'm curious to see if, you know, you're probably speaking to a lot of CXOs across industries, are you seeing any new pains and challenges emerging for them during this crisis that could be an opportunity for new founders and, and entrepreneurs?
1: Yeah, I mean, um, the, 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 the immediate challenges is, especially for IT, they're right in the center of this, this new digital um, organization, whether they want to be or not. And I, I think that's one of the problems, right? A lot of the companies, a lot of CIOs have been on these transformation journeys for a couple of years now, maybe three or four, Um, but they haven't really gone digital. And what's happened overnight, we switched on a, you know, we turned a switch and consumers and employees went digital. And they're just trying to figure out how to make that work right now. So the guidance for them is really around, okay, how? what's the new normal? What they really care about is, what's the new normal gonna look like? How are we gonna work? When are we going to insist that people get together? When, um, you know, if we have another outbreak, how do we keep the, the engine running? So anything um, that helps them, uh, I think if I was a CIO, I, I kind of want to know a bit more, you know, benchmarking on dev teams to make sure that um, everyone's functioning well because we're not in the same room anymore. Um, understanding, uh, you know, better dashboards on how certain assets in my organization are performing, better governance around, application deployment so that I can give people more autonomy at home, um, but still, you know, not have a, a massive mess on my hands uh, when things might get back to a certain type of normal. So they're not, you know, there's not many, they have a lot of apps. I think they're trying to figure out which apps do they need and how do they need to be connected and what workflows do they need to support? And then on the consumer side, they're trying to figure out, uh, depending on who you are, um, how, you know, what's the right engagement model when people, you know, for banking, for example, they need to know you exist. They need help with loans. They need help with mortgage payments. The systems aren't in place to support that right now. How can we help that, you know, become a bit more of a hero to the customer versus, you know, the big, ugly bank or the, you know, the, the slow uh, government agency?
0: Thank you, Gensh. And we have a we have a nicely um, bullish question. Um, from I think it might be Richard from Fundamental which is VR for surgical stimulation. Um, you're unmuted but I know it's a question you have around roll-ups and fundraising for it. Yeah thanks Spencer. Um,
1: Ross thanks for all your insight. Um, you talked earlier about kind of painkillers and, and vitamin and, and we're definitely a painkiller as, as a surgical and medical training, uh, remote medical training system. So I'm really interested in the whole uh, landscape of M- MA and and whether or not We could build a plan that says uh here's a roll-up strategy
0: for uh supping up some of the market that's there some of the competitors who may not raise money over the next be able to raise money and keep themselves going over the next few months um how would you recommend taking that to a vc um, and and putting that
1: together you know I, i think you 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 have you draw out the map and and you help them understand the vision if they bite there then I think as a VC, I do want to know, okay, what do you know about these companies? How do they plug in? Um, what are the gaps between the different products? Um, do you need to roll, roll up a lot of companies or is there one or two, which obviously make things a lot easier? Um, and then, um, you know, what's the product look like? What does the the, what is the end of consumer end up buying? Um, and how pre- quickly can you prove out that's what the market needs? You know, I, I think even with roll-up strategies, it's not a whole lot different, you still got to make sure what you're bringing to market is really what people want um, and of course um, I, I you know I, I don't know if you've really got a a good customer base and you you have a good signals from what you've got and you know where the gaps are in the product yet yeah? um, but if you have that, that makes things a bit easier
0: i might I might pick on um uh, we've got lots of multi-stage funds on the line, but Ben from Atomico is here. One-word answer, Ben. Have you seen any multi? Have you seen any roll-up fundraisers in the last uh, in the last couple of months?
2: Where, where specific companies are raising to to fund specifically acquisitions?
0: Y- yes, exactly
2: um no i i I can't say i've seen anything specifically yet um although i think that there's a lot of sentiment going around that there is there is opportunity for that um i think it's obviously something that later stage investors growth investors have have had in their playbook for for much longer but i think it's definitely something when we talk to some of our our later stage and, and more mature companies it's something we're saying to them is you know, keep your eyes out. Keep your eyes out for areas in in your product roadmap that you could, you know, potentially accelerate by by looking at smaller companies who, who may otherwise not not um, successfully make it through this scenario and give them a, a home to really kind of um, to succeed in that way. So, I I think whether it's a later stage company that's already well funded that can 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 play that role, or whether it's new funding going in to kind of roll up, I think there's definitely a, a chance to do that and something we should all be looking at adding into our playbook.
0: Brilliant. Thank you, Ben. Sorry for picking on you without warning. Mm-hmm. Wesley, I think you are unmuted and it was a question you had for Ross uh, around how MuleSoft would have pivoted in a, in a COVID-type world, but over to you. Yeah, I guess it was just that really. Um, if you are pre-revenue and you're going back then, knowing what you know now, how you might have adapted your plans. And I guess that goes for fundraising as it does in terms of go-to-market.
1: I, you know, I think... Um was actually we just had this conversation with, um, at MuleSoft and you know, for our customer base as we are now, we're not pre-revenue obviously, um, speed is really important. I think if we're pre-revenue, um, I'm not sure this would have been a good market for us to sell into. So if pre-revenue we might have hunkered down and come up with a, a plan to accelerate our product, um, which is what we did the last time round, actually. Uh, because the thing is, if you're doing small integration deals with, a, with an organization, there's n- it's very hard to get leverage or lift from that. Like an integration goes in and then it disappears and no one knows you exist and there's no upsell opportunity. So for us, it was very clear that it was pretty better to strip down the organization, uh, live through the crisis and I, I think whether it was a pandemic or the financial crisis for us pre-revenue or you know we had one million revenue we you know we just hunkered down and, and invested in products knowing that at some point things were course correct and we'd have a, um, a better market fit afterwards
0: i apologize for not fitting in all of the questions but we should let ross go um with 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 the final something that melissa and i prepared which is which is 10 10- One word answers Ross's, they're either or as these. Um, And so, uh, um, no thinking please, just straight into them. Um, Geneva or London? London. Hooray! (laughs) Pre-IPO or post-IPO? Oh
1: God, Uh, pre and post, it was like a really fun period.
0: Way too long an answer. Sorry. (laughs) Uh, Apple or Netflix? Netflix. Uh, reality or simulation? Reality. Taylor Swift or Drake?
1: I don't know why but Drake.
0: Really? Okay. Yeah. Uh, founder or VC? Founder. Uh, chips or mash? Chips. Uh, V-shaped recovery, U-shaped recovery or L-shaped recovery? V-shaped? Okay, so you're, you're, you're bullish. Uh, power or money? I didn't understand the question, actually. Okay. Um, that one was just about whether you think sharp bounce back, longer sort of recession, or full-on global depression.
1: Oh or, no, actually I, I think it's going to be, we have, we're going to have a pretty
0: big recession, so sort of the okay. opposite. What okay, so you or L, or sort of you yeah. slanting into an L. Um, really- power,
1: p- power or money? Uh, power, I guess.
0: I think that's a trick question. I think one comes with the other, but anyway. Um, or at least the latter. Um, uh, would you rather fight a hundred duck-sized horses? or would you rather fight one horse-sized duck?
1: A hundred duck-sized horses.
0: Okay, and very last one, Mike Moritz or Scott Sandell?
1: Uh, Scott Sandell.
0: I know you've got some Welsh heritage, so I thought I'd slip that in fairly. <laughs> <laughs> that was a really unfair one. Um, Ross, thank you so much. Um, really, really um, appreciate it. And thank you, everyone, for dialing in. Thank you for all the questions. Um, but genuinely grateful uh, to you for taking the time and um, uh, sharing so much past and present and insight. So um, thank you, everyone. <laughs>